This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. What is the value of a human life? While that answer lies beyond the ken of priests, philosophers, or physicians, the quality adjusted life year, or quality standard for valuing life, is at the core of many European healthcare rationing policies. Initially adopted to reduce costs for prohibitively high-priced therapies, many European healthcare services use quality to authorize therapies based on their demonstrated ability to extend the length and quality of life relative to their costs. In the US, Quali's seemingly objective and scientific model is gaining purchase with policymakers looking to reduce future costs for federally funded programs such as Medicaid and Medicare. Could US healthcare costs be contained if experts were able to weigh a therapy's medical benefits against its cost of use? Could those experts be expected to compare drugs that extended lives with those that merely improved life quality? And if greater quality and quantity of life determines a therapy's value, will therapies that aid older or weaker patients be funded less or lose approval? And would Americans accept a denial of treatment based on an expert's view of its relative value? My guest today is Dr. Bill Smith, Senior Fellow in Life Sciences at Pioneer Institute and author of the recently released book entitled Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to American Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations, in which he examines the ethical and medical foundations for using quality-adjusted life year methods to ration medical therapies. Dr. Smith will discuss his book's argument that while methodologies purport to offer objective and fair valuations for medical therapies, the complexity and subjectivity of quality metrics make their real-world application clinically meaningless and politically untenable. He will share with us the ways in which quality standards could stifle innovation and limit access to treatment for the elderly and vulnerable. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's senior fellow and author, Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by our listener favorite and author of the newly released book, Rationing Medicine, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations, Dr. Bill Smith. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Bill. Great to be with you, Joe. Well, uh, I'm thrilled to have you. Congratulations on the release of your new book. Uh, I've read it, and it's really... uh, uh, interesting. It covers some of the topics you and I have uh, discussed in earlier episodes of Hubwonk, but some new uh, new material, uh, even some that uh, includes the experiences or what we've learned from the experience of COVID. So let's let's start with the idea that you've chosen to examine the way in which European models ration medicine. Um, I think more specifically, it's Great Britain that you you cite most often. Um, but before we get kicked off, let's talk about why. Let's say. Um, uh, Great Britain's system is different, how it's different, and why these systems might have been um, embraced by the UK, whereas uh, no such um, uh, rationing uh, methodologies are used in the US you know, to date. So let's start there. Yeah, so uh, this is really the, telling the story of how the quality adjusted life year developed is is really uh, kind of interesting because it, it gives you insight into why uh, they they use these systems in, in particularly in, in countries that have socialized medicines. Uh, 
And in Great Britain, what happened was in the 60s and 70s, this idea was kicking around in the universities to develop some type of cost-effectiveness methodology to rate surgeries and, and drugs and anything in healthcare. Um, but it got new life in the 90s. There was a health minister named Jerry Malone in, in 1995, and MS patients, multiple sclerosis patients, uh, started in the 1990s taking beta interferon, which was a very expensive medication, but seemed to have some efficacy on MS. And uh, the National Health Service had to decide whether to cover it, and it was going to be very expensive. Some estimates ran as even high as 10% of the entire National Health Service budget would be have to be devoted to beta interferon if they covered it for everyone. And so they brought this to the health minister to decide, and he was really angry that they had brought him this very difficult decisions because he was caught between his budget concerns and the patient's. And he ended up splitting the baby and covering it for some people and not others. But he, he said to his staff, I, I'm done with making these decisions. I don't want to be stuck with deciding that the life or death of a patient develops some kind of system that will be objective and will be seen as objective. And so by 1997, a couple of years later, Tony Blair had come in on a commitment to save the National Health Service, and, and they instituted the, the formal cost-effectiveness methodology called the Quality Adjusted Life Year. Um, so so I want to stop there. So at its heart, it was sort of a cost control um, um, methodology. You know, you can't give it to everyone, as you say, it would bankrupt the system. But on another level, it was an objective to um, deflect blame from, uh, let's say, political leaders and say, look, I don't want to be the minister of life and death. Uh, I'd rather have some sort of, quote unquote, objective standard so that I can shift, uh, I don't call it blame, but uh, responsibility for these decisions. Absolutely. The cynic would say it, it was a fig leaf to provide political cover on tough healthcare decisions that had to be made when the the, the government runs the entire healthcare system. Yeah, so uh, you can see why uh, it, it would have some uh, purchase amongst those who want to control costs and also deflect blame. But fundamentally, Bill, before we get further down this line, uh, for our listeners, you and I have talked about this idea in the past. In a system like in the UK, the government is running the healthcare system, as opposed to in the US, it's a private system that the government helps subsidize. In other words, they may give you a check to go into your private hospital and get a private doctor to give you, you know, medicine provided by the private uh, uh, sector. In the UK, the government's running the show. So in our system, when the patient walks through the front door, there are revenue opportunity. The hospital wants to uh, charge you uh, for the service they provide. In the UK, when you walk in the front door, you're a cost center, meaning every person that walks through the door is one less dollar the, the NHS has for someone else. So it's a very different universe. Absolutely correct. And and in, in the U.S., there are also more market forces that help keep quality high. Um, so, you know, a, a if you are uh, on your company's health plan, that health plan obviously has a, a, a goal of controlling costs. But the, com the, the health plan also has the, the uh, goal of pleasing the employer, pleasing the employees. So there are market forces in place, in, in particularly in the commercial health plan insurance world in the U.S., that, that are incentives to keep quality high. And, and I can't say those same incentives exist in Canada or Great Britain, where the government controls everything. Yes, indeed. So um, so, um, so, let's get into this. It's the uh, quality uh, 
adjusted life years, um, what we're trying to do or what UK was trying to do and what we're going to be talking about today is it is this sort of a methodology to say, okay, um, you know, uh, some medicines are worth the price and others are not. Explain for our listeners, what does that mean when we're talking about how does one have an index whereby this drug that if, uh, um, uh, solves this disease for this patient versus that, a different disease, a different patient, how do we get every disease and every patient into one index? Where, where, where are we coming from? So the, the quality adjusted life here is a methodology that tries to measure the ability of a drug to extend life. How long is it going to keep you alive and improve the quality of life? And they use a score of 1.0. So let's just say uh, you, you, a new cancer drug extends life for six months. It would get a 0.5 rating on longevity scale. But let's say it also causes pain uh, when you're taking the drug. So it only gets a 0.3 on the, that scale, on the on the quality of life scale. So the average ends up being a 0.4, and that drug gets a 0.4 score. And then the value of human life, and this is the arbitrary nature of the quality, they put a, a monetary value on a year of life lived in perfect health, a good quality of life and a year of full life. And in in the U.S., the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, which does a lot of the quality reviews in the U.S., rates the value of a life between $100,000 and $150,000. So if a drug got a 0.4 score, it might be cost-effective if it was less than $40,000 because you, you multiply 0.4 times $100,000 or $150,000, and you get a range of when the, when the drug would be cost-effective. That's crudely how it works. I mean, there are more complex calculations that go into establishing these qualities, but basically they put a value on the human life. And the thing about that is, is it's completely subjective because if you were to say, which I would say about my children, that their lives are worth tens of millions of dollars, then any drug is going to be rated as cost effective. If you say a human life is only worth $10,000, many, many, many drugs will not be uh, rated as cost effective. So you can manipulate this value of human life threshold up and down, and governments do manipulate it up and down to decide how much they're going to spend on drugs and how, how many drugs are going to be declared not cost effective. And so the UK even has a lower threshold than the US, uh, the 100, 100 to 150,000 dollars threshold used by ICER is, is even lower. It's, it's 30,000 or 40,000 pounds in, the, in in Great Britain. So many, many drugs are not rated as cost effective in Britain. But the, the entire, in my view, the entire system is arbitrary because of that designation of valuing life at a certain level. Um, and if you can manipulate that up and down, you can decide which drugs are going to be cost effective and which are not. So let's okay. Let's table that idea, and let's let's uh, stipulate that one has the wisdom of Solomon to know how much a, a life is truly worth in an objective sense. Your book goes into great detail and talk about there are other flaws with even if we could determine what a single life is worth, um, there are difficult um, challenges in comparing uh, saving the life of let's say a child versus an older person. Uh, that the, the uh, system, you know deliberately waits a, a year of life. And one, if one is 10 years old and we save their life uh, and they're expected to live to 80, that's 70 years of benefit. Whereas if one is 70 and you uh, address uh, their their disease and cure their disease and provide them with 10 additional years, 
uh, you're really, you know, you're saying that the child's cure is seven times more valuable than the adult or older person's cure. Um, that seems to be, uh, you know, even if you are able to objectively evaluate a life of a deep problem, meaning it, it, it's fundamentally ageist, it, it would almost discount or disregard any disease that afflicts the elderly. Is, do I have that right? Yes. And and, and the same is true of uh, quality of life for those people living with disabilities. They may never get a perfect quality of life. So if a drug does not a drug extends their life dramatically, but does not improve their quality of life significantly. That drug is by nature going to get a lower score under the quality because it won't get a high quality of life score. So drugs that that are, extend the lives of people living with disabilities are not going to be rated as highly. Um, so it's got all sorts of what my book tries to do is look at different patient populations and the complexities involved in those patient populations, patients living with rare diseases or cancer or with disabilities and, and say, you know what, this quality model can't capture the complexities of this. And it ends up being unfair to these specific populations because I, I'm, I'm skeptical that you could come up with some formula invented, you know, with the guy with a calculator that can capture all the possible complexities of a of a drug therapy on on a patient. So we right now we don't have this sort of quality um, standard, um, but your book mentions the fact that even if we were to have this, we do have other protections for the. Um, for those with disabilities, specifically the ADA. Um, and if literally it, by statute, uh, such a standard would discount all diseases. If, if, if we're in a wheelchair and our quality of life is half that of those people who are you know, not uh, uh, con confined to a wheelchair, you know, every, every therapy that serves us is half as valuable as, everyone, as every therapy that serves someone without such a disability. So we're by, you know, by definition, uh, discriminating against, against those with disabilities. It, 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 do you think that sort of, you know, right out of the gate, any sort of quality would, would fail on that measure? As a, as a practical matter, I think if Congress were to pass legislation, and they're actually moving in the opposite direction, they're, they're thinking about banning the quality. But if, if they were somehow to pass legislation implementing the quality system to rate drugs in Medicare and Medicaid, I think it would immediately draw uh, an Americans with Disabilities Act lawsuit, and that lawsuit would be successful. Yes, indeed. Um, now, your book, again, we're going to talk about all the flaws with quality, um, and I was take each one by one. Um, how does, um, if, again, we're, we're going to stipulate that it's well-intentioned, but how does a quality, again, we're using uh, European uh, uh, models as our example, how does um, a a quality uh, capture the real world experience of patients with particular therapies. Meaning, you know, I I'm suffering from condition A. You're suffering from condition B. Who's there to objectively measure how much we've if we've improved? It seems impossible. Yeah, it, it is difficult, and there are flaws in the quality system. If, for example, on quality of life measures, you're trying to give a drug a score on a quality of life measure. And let's say it causes pain or it, allow, it it forces you into a wheelchair. There's all sorts of things that quality of life uh, conditions that, that could be scored under the quality. And what they do is they, they sample the general 
population. They don't sample the patients who actually suffer from that condition. They go out to the general public and say, how valuable would it be if it reduced your pain level from a, a 10 out of 10 to a 7 out of 10? How how valuable would that be? And then, then they give it a score and they kind of poll the general population. And I think one of the terrible flaws in, in the quality methodology is they don't actually poll patients that, that are suffering from these conditions who would know exactly what changes in quality of life would matter and how to score them. Yeah, indeed. Now, we, we're talking in general terms about what, what kind of conditions. Let's drill down to some of the more uh, specific, you know, real-world uh, problems that uh, people are likely to encounter. You, you talk in some uh, depth about a cancer, which ranks just behind heart disease for a killer of, of, of Americans in the U.S. Just the very word cancer, I'm sure, uh, strikes fear in everyone's heart because it can hit anyone uh, at any time. Um, why would, uh, let's say, quality be very, very difficult, particularly uh, with cancer uh, in, in targeting therapies that, that most benefit cancer patients? Well, there, there, there are numerous reasons I point to. For example, they don't, they don't put any value on the caregivers and, and how a drug might improve the life of a caregiver because caregivers spend on average 33 hours a week in caring for a patient with cancer. If you have a spouse or some or a child, God forbid, get, gets cancer, you spend a lot of time and, and they don't rate the value of all that caregiving. But more scientifically, even more economically, you know, cancer clinical trials uh, generally do not reflect how the drug is later used. So a drug may be in a clinical trial for prostate cancer, and then oncologists later discover, hey, this is really effective on small cell lung cancer. So it becomes the small cell lung cancer drug. The problem with that is that the quality review takes place using the clinical trial data. So they're reviewing a drug that's not even going to be used by this set of patients. Um, and it's typically not enough patients for them to make a a reliable review. So, because you don't know how long a, a drug is going to keep a cancer patient alive just in the trials, you, you got to find out how, how many people are going to survive, but they don't wait. They do the reviews generally right away using only clinical trial data. So, and, and later, you know, the patient could live for 50 more years and it could be a miracle cure and that won't show up in the clinical trial. So this seems to me a huge flaw in that determining the quality is, is a moment in time looking backward and saying it has done these things, so it, therefore it is worth X. Uh, right. What they're suggesting is it may do far more, but that's unknowable at the time you make the determination so that once a quality is established, uh, despite the, the subsequent benefits, as you say, 50 more years of additional life that might have influenced, but of course is unknowable at the time, uh, may, it further distorts uh, these values. Precisely. And the same is true with rare diseases. Gene therapies, one of the big unknowables about gene therapies is how long will it last? You know, if you can replace a flawed gene, cut it out using CRISPR technology, replace it with a healthy gene, how long does that gene stay healthy? And the answer is we just don't know. We don't know. And, and the people doing quality reviews can't know one way or the other. Uh, so I just consider them unreliable. Your 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 book again to bring in the uh, British model talks about the way in which uh, not only is it let's say unscientific and somewhat arbitrary, it's uh, politically uh, let's say um, uh, unpalatable. Your book mentions the way in which the British system tried to uh, use quality for uh, cancer therapies, and there was somewhat of a backlash. Describe for our listeners uh, how that evolved. 
Yeah, so uh, when the drug Herceptin was approved um, in the U.S. in particular, it was thought of as a miracle drug treatment for breast cancer. And the EU was slow in approving different indications for the drug, and it was not approved for early stage breast cancer. It was only approved for late later stage, stages. And yet British women wanted the treatment. <laughs> if you're diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, you read about this miracle drug, Herceptin, and uh, it wasn't available. It wasn't available. And and. The National Health Service was taking a long time to do the quality review because they wanted to study how long it would keep patients alive. And, and there were all these bureaucratic challenges in getting it to patients in Britain. But patients revolted. They just descended upon the parliament. And in the midst of this Herceptin controversy, a study appeared that was commissioned by the parliament, which said the British people have the worst cancer care in the, in the developed world. And that they would have to spend 200 million pounds per year to catch up with the rest of the world uh, on cancer care. So the parliament just said, forget it. We're not doing any more quality reviews on oncology drugs. We're just going to appropriate 200 million pounds and we're going to pay for all the latest treatments. And it's called the Drugs Cancer Fund. And it still exists. And it was a reaction to the quality actually scaling back the number of treatments that were available to men and women in Great Britain. And the, the politically, there was such a backlash, they just threw the quality out, right out the window. So so were we even to uh, consider implementing it, it's likely that you know one, once uh, people are faced with these constraints, um, po political will will uh, uh, break the quality uh, uh, standard uh, more than likely. Uh, um, but I, I want to move on. I, I, one thing occurred to me while you were answering, were we to embrace this sort of uh, constraint on, uh, were we to use quality to, to determine which drugs are quote unquote valuable enough to, uh, to cover, wouldn't this perhaps be a, a convenient way for uh, other, let's say, um, actors in our health system like PBMs and insurance companies, if they wanted to, let's say, improve their bottom line and simply ensure that qualities disqualified all these rather expensive new drugs, wouldn't it, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't they benefit as well? Uh, you know, essentially saying, yeah, you know, cover the, the you know, low cost drugs, but don't cover these high cost drugs. You know, it seems like a simple out. Yeah, I, I tend to worry more about the use of the quality in rationing medicines in the government programs and not as much in the commercial world. As I talked about earlier, you know, there are market incentives in, in the commercial world for uh, health insurance companies to cover drugs, to have a, a robust formulary and to be able to say to the employer, whether it's Ford Motor Company or J.P. Morgan or whoever, you know what, we're giving you a quality formulary. Your employees are going to be quite happy with it. So, you know, there are incentives, of course, to cut costs, but there are also incentives to keep quality. And so I would worry most about the use of the quality. I, I, I think commercial health medical directors, commercial health insurance medical directors, for example, will probably read a review about the quality and try to understand what they're saying. But won't use it exclusively in making a decision about a formulary on a drug. Whereas I think the danger is if it were adopted by the government, Medicaid or some other program, they would just take the recommendation and implement it. 
So all the uh, horror stories and all the prospects, uh, dystopian future is really going to fall, unfortunately, to those who are most vulnerable, let's say the poor or the old uh, who are relying on go government. Uh, uh, yeah, but getting back to your earlier point about political backlash, I do not see American senior citizens putting up with this kind of rationing in their Part D program, for example. I just don't see it. There would be an enormous backlash if the Medicare program, by using the quality, started scaling back oncology drugs or cardiovascular drugs or other drugs that seniors really relied upon. Well, that dovetails into a, a I won't call it a final point, but a feature in your book that I think is very valuable when they talk about qualities. We're talking about, you know, as you say, improving quality of life and years of life. But of course, within populations, that is, if everybody gets a particular disease, it's a very valuable uh, prospect to have some sort of cure. If only a few people get a particular disease, again, it's discounted. So these so-called orphan drugs or those drugs that afflict a smaller proportion of, the, of our society um, are in, naturally at a disadvantage, both you know, as far as quality score, but also as far as political will goes, you know, to, to, to sort of tie all those ideas together. If I've got a, a disease that very few people have, uh, the quality score may be lower because it, the population doesn't, the entire population doesn't necessarily need it. Uh, and also the political will behind uh, defending those drugs is, is smaller. Wouldn't this system make orphan drugs uh, particularly vulnerable? Yeah. And and in my view, the, the quality, the, the threshold for life, the value of life for the quality does not take into, effect, into account the unique market forces uh, that go into creating a rare disease drug. Rare disease drugs are very expensive to develop because it's hard to find the patients with the disease. You might find one patient in Idaho that has the particular rare disease. And guess what? You have to set up a clinical trial site for that one patient. You have to ship nurses and all sorts of people up there to take that person's blood on a regular basis. And that's very expensive to do. So while the R&D is, is expensive, then when it comes time and the drug is approved, you have a small set of patients to sell it to, right? You know, you have 1,000, 2,000 patients. So by their nature, rare disease drugs are going to be more expensive. Now, we can argue in individual cases whether 3 million is too expensive or 1 million is too expensive. But in a, as a general law of economics, rare disease drugs are going to be more expensive than other drugs. But the quality methodology doesn't take that into account. And they, they keep the thresholds the same, whether it's for rare disease drugs or for non-rare disease drugs. And I just don't see how that's sustainable, particularly as we move, as, as the human genome gets mapped further and further, and we start to understand that particular sets of patients, drugs are going to be very effective. And for other sets of patients, it's going to, they're going to be ineffective. Well, I, I think you know, you're bringing, you've, you've nicely set up my last uh, question of specifically about um uh, smaller uh, patient groups, uh, we focus often on, on Hubwonk on the concept of precision medicine, whereby rather than giving everybody a therapy and seeing who who it works on, uh, in the future, not too distant future, we'll be able to look use gene therapy to understand which drugs are right for which patients, in which case each of us is essentially a, a uh, an orphan drug or rare disease uh, uh, holder. Uh, my cancer is different than your cancer, therefore my therapy is different than your therapy. Therefore, my you know as, as they become more and more targeted, the quality score sort of disappears because I'm a, a subset of one uh, rather than you know 600 million people who get cancer every year. So uh, uh, describe for us then how precision medicine and quality are sort of you know in in. in I think precision medicine makes the quality eventually obsolete. 
You know, right. it, they don't have, they don't test drugs for lung cancer anymore. For example, they test drugs for different types of genetic flaws that lead to lung cancer. And so getting a, a large sample of patients and coming up with one score for a, a lung cancer drug, I think that's, that world is going to go away. I don't, I don't see how we keep it going. Um, you're you're going to, one patient may, may see the drug be highly effective and improve their quality of life dramatically. And the next patient, it will do nothing for them. So I just don't know how these large scale cost-effectiveness studies can can stick around in a world of personalized medicine. So for uh, uh, many reasons uh, that we've covered here and your book covers, and I hope our listeners will go out and buy that book. It's a, a, an excellent book, very, very uh, dense and concise. But, I have uh, it right here, Rationing oh, Medicine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and good. it's available on Amazon and Kindle version also. All right. We move product on this podcast, so I hope <laughs> everyone will run out and, and buy it. Um, uh, but... Uh, how real? I mean, we've painted a, you know, we're in violent agreement that these standards, these uh, quote unquote rational, objective rationing standards are by their very nature vague, uh, arbitrary, and uh, obsolete if we accept the, the notion that we're moving towards a precision medicine. Are, where are they now? Who is proposing this? Are, are we just inventing uh, monsters to, to dragons to slay? Or, or is someone actually proposing using these kind of standards to ration medicine in the United States? Um, well, it, that's a complicated question. There, that when the House Republicans took the House in the last midterm election, um, th the new chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Kathy McMorris Rogers, actually has a a son living with disabilities and has passed a bill both at the subcommittee and full committee level that would ban the use of the quali. Um, now the Democrats were nervous about this bill because they felt the language might be too sweeping and might prevent Joe Biden's administration from rating, putting price controls on drugs that were passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. How are they going to decide what price the drug is going, going to be? And if the they ban the use of all cost-effectiveness methodologies, will the Biden administration have the ability to put those price controls on? So there's there's a lot kicking around in in the beltway about cost effectiveness reviews and how to implement them generally the republicans um are opposed to the quality overall because they see it as a tool of rational ration rationing medicine like in socialist countries and the democrats are also to their credit they're very concerned about the impact on people living with disabilities of the quality um so you have some very articulate democrats like tony Coelho, the former house whip um, who has epilepsy and and has been a very articulate advocate uh, opposing the quality. So there there's a good deal of opposition in the U.S. to the quality, but there's also concern that they want to ratchet down pharmaceutical prices, and that that's a common theme of most most politicians. Indeed, it's interesting. Then uh, we have uh, this is a rare event whereby Congress is actually asserting its uh, power over the executive branch to say. You know, these are you. You have a broad, uh, sweeping power to to um, to uh, pursue health care policies, but we're going to constrain your prerogatives by forbidding the use of these kinds of standards. And as you say, it has perhaps for slightly different reasons, broad bipartisan support. Um, uh, so that were Biden to try something like this, uh, it may get sort of either invalidated or slapped down by Congress. I mean, the Biden administration, again, to their credit, has said in various reports and other documents, we are not going to use the quality when we're reviewing drugs in Medicare. 
but they want to retain the ability to use potentially some other cost-effectiveness methodology, which is unsaid. Uh, they haven't they haven't explained how they're going to do that. Well, that, that's a a good way to. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Look, you and I both uh, are advocates of markets uh, and their ability to control costs. You mentioned the fact that we have more market forces here in the U.S. than we might have in, let's say, uh, countries where the the government actually provides healthcare. Um, you and I also share concerns that we're, our budgets uh, for healthcare and everything really are are exploding. Um, if not for quality or something like that to ration uh, which therapies are uh, cost effective and which are just absolutely you know not, what would you as an you know as an expert as a PhD in this universe, someone who's written a book, if not quality, how do we ration medicine and the cost of medicine in a meaningful way that, that brings value to everyone? Well, we do it now. I mean, <laughs> we, we do it now. It's just not a, a formula that somebody with a slide rule somewhere has invented that tries to capture all the complexity. Let's face it, the value of a drug is going to be determined by the payers, by the physicians, by the patients, by the patient's caregivers, by a whole web of social actors um, that are going to have views about how valuable that drug, that particular drug is. And, and I, I'm skeptical that some really smart economist from Harvard could come up with a formula that would capture all of that complexity and all of those inputs that, that go into assessing value. I'd rather leave it to the market the way it is and let payers and patients. And, you know, if a drug is highly effective and the patient really is thrilled with taking it, their employer is going to know and then the employer is going to tell the health plan and the health plan is going to want to cover it. And you'll have forces that are healthy forces in place rather than with somebody coming up with some complex formula done on high in an academic way and, and them playing God and saying, okay, this drug is not cost effective. Okay, so uh, go ahead. I was going to say this is sort of the classic Hayekian uh, knowledge problem that nobody could possibly assess the value of a particular drug or therapy. It's, it's, it's unknowable. Yeah, that, that's that's it. A million market forces have have come in and and decide. You know, a few years ago, 2018, J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon all got together and said, "We're going to remake healthcare." And they hired some Harvard surgeon who said, "I'm going to remake healthcare. All the incentives are wrong. The system is broken. We're gonna we're gonna have a completely revolution in healthcare in these three companies." The thing failed because I don't think you can do top-down figuring out of all the forces that that matter in healthcare. Uh, I just think uh, th that you got to get input from a lot of people, from patients, from their physicians, but ultimately let the market sort it out. And and ultimately, the, the, the byproduct of this market sorting it out is a lot of money does go into these therapies, but that is also a healthy incentive for innovation. So, uh, you know, all the things that you might get treated with didn't exist 10 years ago. And as those are people chasing the opportunity of, of, of innovation and, and perhaps profit. And then I'll bring in one final uh, issue that we, you and I have talked about on other uh, podcasts episodes. All these therapies, as expensive as they are, ultimately fall off patent and become virtually free uh, for everyone. Meaning yeah. if you're on the bleeding edge of a new therapy, sure, it costs a lot, but only for a short period of time. Then it goes to nothing, which is to say it's the sort of the exhaust of a 
let's say, costly system that you know is always calling for the next better thing. Once you shut that off with, let's say, a quality methodology, the conveyor belt of new innovation uh, stops. You essentially ha have access to everything and uh, everything that exists and nothing to, to those things that do not yet exist. And even, even for drugs that remain on patent and remain expensive, if it might be more than a million dollars, the market is responding. I mean, Harvard Pilgrim, which is a health plan up in, in Boston, is one of the leaders in so-called value-based reimbursement. And basically what that means is they pay for a drug in installments. So you have a $2 million drug that, that cures a terrible disease and you only have a couple patients with it. You say you say to the health plan says to the drug manufacturer, okay, we'll pay five hundred thousand up front, and then we'll pay a, a series of five hundred thousand dollar payments. But if the drug stops working, we stop paying. So you know there are creative things that can be done to to pay for these more expensive rare disease drugs, and and the market's figuring those out. So again, we're we're preaching a market uh, methodologies, but. Uh, you know, lots of different consumers, lots of different uh, providers, each with their own perception of value, are providing you know a, a, a sort of a machine for determining value, keeping uh, costs under control, uh, but still incentivizing new innovation. Is there anywhere? So um, again, we I want to give you one final chance to plug the book, but uh, are where for our listeners who want to understand everything there is to know about quality beyond reading your book? Uh, are there um, let's say? Uh, uh, inspirational thinkers or political leaders that really get it and are uh, you know, vigilant about these kinds of you know, bizarre or arbitrary rationing uh, methodologies. Well, I, you know, just to, for fairness' sake, you should they should go on the Institute for Clinical and Economic Reviews website. They're the the foremost advocates in the U.S. of using the quality, and they explain their methodology and they have a very useful website that goes through their methodology and how it works. And uh, they're constantly making revisions, trying to adjust the methodology for this or that circumstance, which has arisen. Um, so, you know, as far as equal time, uh, I might I might point them there first. They they certainly can read my book. They could, they could follow the hearings that have happened in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, both the Subcommittee on Health and the Full Committee, where they, they talked about the quality in, in great detail. The Biden administration, Secretary Becerra, has put out a report about um, cost-effectiveness methodologies in Medicare, the one where they, they acknowledged they weren't going to use the quality. So there are lots of resources around there. It's, it, it, it appears to be a very complicated topic, but once you scratch the surface of it, you realize what's going on. They're just assessing a value to human life and they can manipulate that value up or down depending on how many drugs they want to pay for. And that's that. And that's how it works. Indeed. Indeed. Getting back to Vol Sokral, uh, once you're a cost center, which you are, let's say, in a government program, uh, it's up to them to value your life. Exactly. <laughs> With that. Uh, you know, we'll see how history has treated those people who've trusted the government to value their life. So to see the opposite, um, uh, let's say the counterpart to our discussion, they would go to the uh, ICER or the Institute for Clinical Economic Review. Correct. Uh, and uh, and read the best case uh, for uh, preserving a quality or a, a quote unquote rational um, um, uh, rationing um, methodology. So Bill, this has been a great conversation. Uh, again, uh, the name of your book and where they can buy it. Uh, it's Rationing Medicine, William Smith, and uh, Threats from European Cost-Effectiveness Models to America's Seniors and Other Vulnerable Populations. 
it's it's just a small paperback. It's $9.95. You can get it on Amazon and the Kindle. The Kindle may even be free. I can't remember. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's readily available on Amazon. I think that's a, it's a great, I love the title because I think uh, threats to uh, uh, seniors and other vulnerable populations, I will count the rest of us uh, is either future seniors or uh, future vulnerable populations. So we're going to fall into one of those categories one day. <laughs> so this has universal uh, uh, value. So thank you very much for joining me again today on uh, Hubwonka. Uh, good luck with the uh, with the new book. Thanks for having me, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future Hubwonk episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.